Andrew Talks to Chefs is an independent podcast. For current and past episodes, Andrew's blog, contact information, and more, please visit andrewtalkstochefs.com. To support us, please visit patreon.com slash andrewtalkstochefs. Enjoy the show. Andrew Talks to Chefs is brought to you in part by San Pellegrino Sparkling Natural Mineral Water. For more than 120 years, San Pellegrino has been inspiring people to savor life and tasteful moments around the table. As chefs and restaurants have evolved worldwide, San Pellegrino has always been there to complement the food they serve, the moments they create, and to support them in both good and challenging times. Learn more at sanpellegrino.com. I'm Massimo Bottura. This is Amanda Cohen. This is David Kinch. This is Mike Anthony. This is Huni Kim. This is Amanda Freitag. This is Richard Blaze. This is Paul Kahn. This is Curtis Stein. This is Stephen Harris. This is Missy Robbins. And you're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs. wanting to make a lavish feast out of cookbooks prior to like really working in a restaurant and like already wanting to go into like off the grid kind of creative territory was probably like an early sign of the things to come. That is the voice of Gregory Gorday, chef and owner of Khan Restaurant in Portland, Oregon. Gregory is our guest today on Andrew Talks to Chefs. It's gonna take a Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Andrew Talks to Chefs. I am your host, Andrew Friedman. Our feature guest today is Gregory Gorday. Gregory, of course, is the chef and owner of Khan Restaurant in Portland, Oregon. Many of you probably also know him from his appearances on Top Chef and from his recent book, Everyone's Table. Before we get to Gregory, just a couple of notes. Firstly, as many of you probably read, there were some layoffs at Eater last week, and I want to send my thoughts out to any colleagues who find themselves without a job this week. My heart goes out to all of you. This is our first show of the new year, and it's dropping on January 25th. If you are wondering what took so long, the answer is simply that I needed a break after a very busy fall and holiday season. I've also been planning a new recurring feature of Andrew Talks to Chefs, free standing news segments. I'm dropping our first one today, the same date as this show with Gregory. Angie Marr, chef and owner of Le Trois Chavot in New York City, discusses with me the recent growing anti-fine dining, what seems to me an agenda of the food media. If you are a subscriber, please look for that in your feed in close proximity to this episode. And if you are not already a subscriber, please subscribe. It is free and you can do that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Before I dive into today's show, also a reminder, you can and should Follow us on social media, most prominently on Instagram. Our handle on Instagram is at Chef Podcast. And if you would like to follow me and my writing and restaurant adventures, my personal feed is at Tokeland Andrew, T-O-Q-U-E-L-A-N-D. Andrew, again, Instagram is really the best place to follow us. That is the one place where we do post most dependably. And also as an ongoing reminder, please 
Follow us on our own social media feeds and by subscribing to the podcast or on our website, andrewtalkstochefs.com. We have more than 200 episodes and counting in our catalog, and those are the only places to find episodes that have dropped uh, in the last several years. Uh, So please come to us directly uh, for our shows, whether on our own website and social media or by subscribing to the show directly uh, on your favorite podcast platform. So our guest today is, as I say, Gregory Gorday. And Gregory, last year, opened his restaurant, Khan, which pays tribute to the food of his ancestral home of Haiti. The restaurant is in Portland, Oregon. Gregory has also been a popular presence on Top Chef and wrote a book in the recent past called Everyone's Table. I met Gregory at the James Beard Awards late last spring in Chicago. I liked him right away. He has a warm, laid-back energy, and we talked about him coming on the pod sometime. The only thing is that when he was in New York last month for the Esquire Best New Restaurants Party, and Khan, I should say, was at the top of the magazine's list of Best New Restaurants last year, his team reached out about an interview, and at that point in December, I had stopped scheduling more interviews for 2022. I have a backlog that I still haven't fully launched, but I really wanted to get him on the show. So I offered that if he wouldn't mind coming to my apartment in Brooklyn, I'd be happy to do it here. I honestly didn't think it would work out, but I have to say he agreed to do it. He showed up. He could not have been nicer about it. We had a great visit and um, I look forward hopefully to visiting his restaurant before too long and to seeing him again in that context. Um, I don't think I need to say anything else by way of introduction. I think it's all clear from what I've told you and the way we tee things up during the interview, except to add that, at as always, our feature interview is presented by Sam Pellegrino. Whether in life or on the plate, every chef has a story to tell. Sam Pellegrino proudly helps them share those stories in their restaurants and right here on Andrew Talks to Chefs. The perfect complement to great food and meaningful interactions, Sam Pellegrino is delighted to be a part of the conversation. Learn more at sanpellegrino.com. And with that, let's get to my conversation with Gregory Gorday. Here you go. Gregory, yes. welcome. Thank welcome you so to much. My home. Thank you. <laughs> a little commute to Brooklyn never hurt. <laughs> never hurt. You know, you're having the, quite the year. You and I met very briefly in June, mm-hmm. and you were getting ready to open your restaurant. Indeed. And am I right? I feel like you had like a little bit of the weight of the world on your shoulders. I felt like you were maybe trying to get like it was seemed you know like the comparison for me is like losing, <laughs> like losing the last five pounds on a diet. Like it seemed like you were very eager to be open, and, yeah. but there were some things that were keeping you from quite getting there. We had a really really small team pre-opening. It was basically me and my biz partner, and that was really the core group. I had my chef picked out, but she was Veronica. She's been with me for quite some time, but she was working at a job in the meantime until we got open. But it was like a very very core team, and I feel like the Beard Awards was like one of the first times that I had to leave for a long period of time, right before all these things were really supposed to start happening. Like we had started recipe testing, um, we had started purchasing like equipment that was physically in the space. Um, we're in the process of hiring other teammates, so it was. 
was like a very, very critical time, but I also knew the Beard Awards were extremely ex- important to my career. And, uh, you know, I wanted to celebrate the book as, as much as possible and, uh, you know, just see everyone again after, you know, not being able to see everyone for many, many years and just be inspired by other people in the industry as I, I was going into this final push to open my first restaurant. Yeah. I mean, what you just said really resonates with me about seeing people again. That awards felt really special, I thought. Yeah. Like, I mean, the awards are great. I'm, I'm happy for you. But just like the, the having the, the industry there after everything everyone has been through, it just felt like there was this real good vibe in the air that just whenever I arrived on Saturday, mm. you probably arrived Friday, I'm going to guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, and then the, the beards themselves were after the weekend for yeah. the restaurant awards. But it just felt like this vibe just ran... The whole time, everybody—it was just hugs and yeah. smiles and and just genuine emotion. I feel like we were all in like survival mode for so long throughout the entire pandemic, and you know, obviously we were, we were working with each other, like you know, like racers, bakers against racism, and you know, the IRC, like all, all these amazing things happened throughout the pandemic. But at the same time, within our own businesses uh, or within our just new world, a lot of us were just literally fighting on our own and I feel like those events like get us back together and remind us that like we're a part of a bigger net of community Mm -hmm. and we can support each other and we can reach out and we can talk to each other and we can celebrate there's so many things left to celebrate and there's so many things that we have to celebrate in our industry yeah well, anyway, it's good to see you again. You too. You too. Uh, you mentioned, you know, Brooklyn, and you said it with a little, a little mustard on it a second ago. You're, no, from, you, you're no, from Queens, New I was, York. I was born in Brooklyn, actually. Oh, you were born in Brooklyn? I was born in Brooklyn. That did not turn up Yeah, in my, I was born uh, in Brooklyn, uh, okay. raised in Queens. My mom worked at Brookdale Hospital for many, many years. Okay. Uh, but yeah, I've uh, I've been on the West Coast for the past 15 years. I definitely consider myself my bi-coastal, yep. but New York will always be a huge part of my identity for sure. My former viewers were here, um, both good and bad. So uh, I'm always happy to come back anytime I can. When you come back, is there um, anything, mean, we were just talking, this is how hard you're working right now, right? You came in on the red eye. Yes. Um, this is not <laughs> a, like, this is not the absentee chef, right? You worked last night. Oh yeah. It was so busy. You know, <laughs> I actually left on time, which I was very proud of myself for to get to the airport. airport. Uh, But yeah, I mean, you know, the other option was like miss a day of work and we were so busy last night. So I'm really, really happy that I was able to be there with the team. Yeah. But you you took the red eye. Yeah. Uh, uh, You're, I can say this broadly, right? You're in your forties now. Yep. So, you know, even for someone with the constitution of a, of a chef, right. (laughs) It's harder to do the red eye. I I always do the red eye when I go West coast to East coast. Almost always. Cause I don't like to lose that day. Yeah. that I end up sometimes like napping half the day anyway, yeah. right? I mean, I've been I've definitely been better about sleep lately. So like a couple nights not getting enough sleep, I can handle. You know, I mean, but you know, like a few years ago, you know, it w- it would be days and days and days. Like pre-pandemic, it would be days without sleep. Yeah. You know, just because right. I was working, doing events, traveling all around the world. Right. And, you know, like all that has like quieted down quite a bit. Yeah. So here's my question. I'm assuming the reason I mentioned the red eye is I'm assuming you probably didn't do it today. Maybe you did. But is there, is there are there any touchstones for you in New York as someone who grew up here? Like when you come back, is there like some place you go to get like uh, I don't know some food you used to love or uh, uh, a coffee you used to you know? Are there, are there, um, any, are there any old like haunts that you get back to when you can find them in it, or me, is that all in the rearview mirror? I mean, like a lot of places that we used to go to back in the day closed. You know, like mm-hmm. I haven't lived in New York in about sixteen years um, total. Yeah. Um, 
And, uh, you know, I actually, I left New York, uh, pretty bad in my addiction, you know? So it, you know, I actually checked into rehab and within a few months I moved to, to San, San, um, to San Diego. So it really took like a lot of years of work of getting sober, making amends, being able to visit all these places that we used to go to and like, remember like how bad it was. And then, you know, over the years I've been able to make new memories, you know, all my friends here have gotten married and, you know, have, have had kids. So everyone slowed down. So throughout that, we've been able to create new memories, but New York is the city that keeps changing. You know, it's like funny to like, you know, think about going to the cafeteria and like, you know, like we used to go there like after the bars and like pasties back in the day or go to like all the old clubs and, you know, none of those places are around anymore, you know? but we're able to create new memories and, and it, it feels good. You mentioned addiction. I was going to get there at some point. Is it ever hard for you to come back? You know, I, I have a lot, there's a lot of um, mostly alcoholism in my family. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there's that old line, right? People, people, places, and things as yeah. things that kind of spark the old, you know, the demons. Yeah, I mean. The, the temptations. I'm Are you pretty, past I, that as far yeah, as Yeah, I mean, I'm goes? definitely past that. I'm pretty secure in my sobriety. I feel really good about it. Um, you know, there, I mean, there's definitely those moments, you know, like you keep coming off a red eye and like taking, you know, a car and, and then like getting out in like the East Village. Sometimes we stay there and like it's like 6 a.m. And like it's definitely like triggering to like. I remember what it's like to be roaming around the streets of the East Village at 6 a.m., you know, after like a night out in New York yes. City. But I know that I'm sober and I know I'm just like getting off a plane and like it's extremely different. So it's not so fraught for you. It's not, no, it's, it's actually like very cool to kind of have that feeling, but also know that like I'm in a much, much better place. You have control. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I have control. I'm really curious about your childhood here in mm-hmm. New York mm-hmm. because uh, in getting ready to talk to you, I did some research. You went to a boarding school. I did. And not just any boarding school. Your folks sent you at St. Andrews? It is. Okay. It is. And if my research is accurate, <laughs> to give people a flavor for this, this is the school that was the school they used in Dead Poets Society? Yes. It was filmed uh, at my high school a year before I got there. And uh, on the West Wing, when they did the flashbacks to when Bartlett was a kid, they used the school as the as the as the uh, location mm-hmm, for mm-hmm, that, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. How does a kid <laughs> from Queens end up at this sc- yeah. at this school? So, I'm assuming. I mean, I have a whole lot of questions connected sure. to this, but I'm I'm going to go out on a limb. Uh, well, this is rude of me. Go ahead and tell me why. And then I'll tell you, and then I'll tell you what I think okay. this has to probably say about how when you finally got around to cooking. Um, well, for me, you know, I, I truly believe it's like a very, a very classic like immigrant story of like the parents, they come to the country, they have to work so hard, they want the best for their kids. You know, you should be like a lawyer or a doctor type of situation. It's very much that sort of thinking. But, you know, we grew up in Queens. It wasn't like the best neighborhood, but it definitely wasn't the worst neighborhood by any means. And, you know, just looking at like kind of educational options, my parents just always supported us and just always wanted the best for my sister and I. So they present us with the options of either going to private school in the city or going to boarding school. And I did use the program Prep for Prep, um, which is a fantastic program that um, prepares um, students of color um, for private schools, like either in the city or boarding schools. So you go, you take extra classes throughout seventh grade, summer between seventh and eighth grade, you go to school all summer, um, and then all of eighth grade, you take more classes, and, and it's just kind of to accelerate your education so you can apply to these schools and, and, and get a good head start. 
So when you say for students of color, mm. it's it's it sounds like you're saying that that program is designed to help just to help students of color. Yes. Generally, it's not that you had any kind of an academic insufficiency. No, yeah. it's it's just kind of like getting you from maybe like, you know, the the little Catholic school that I went to in Queens and having me read like Neural Hillerston and, you know, Mm -hmm. these kind of more important books like William Faulkner and, you know, like studying like calculus. So that you could hit the ground running in in a very potentially intimidating Yeah, just more like academically advanced like school setting. That's awesome. I'm not familiar with that program, but that is totally awesome. It's a really fantastic program, you know, with tons of kids like graduating from like these like, you know, like high end like boarding schools and going to Ivy schools after. So yeah. And uh, so, at what what age did you go to boarding school? Uh, fresh, freshman year of freshman year of high school. Freshman year of high school. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, again, I, I you, you were talking <laughs> before. You don't really listen to the show, so you wouldn't know this. I I tend not to, you know, go to guests um, like demographics, mm-hmm. right? Unless they mm-hmm. bring it up. Okay. Mm-hmm. But I am curious. Mm-hmm. School like that, yeah. student of color, yeah. was that tough? Um, so I really loved my high school experience, and there are definitely few students of color when I went there. It's like the diversity has definitely increased since the past 30 years, mm-hmm. um, of course. Um, but you know, compared to some of the bigger, more affluent boarding schools up north, um, and like Massachusetts and all those places, like very, very, very small boarding school, 250 students in Wilmington, in Middletown, Delaware. So um, it wasn't the most affluent, you know, group of kids. So it was really comfortable, you know. Good. Um, and, you know, we're still extremely close. Um, we're actually like on a WhatsApp thread that's been alive for years. And 30, like a bunch of your classmates? Yeah. Like awesome. 30, 30 years or later, like we're still we still talk to each other every single day. So every day. Every day. Every That's day great. someone lights great. up that thread. Okay, well, I mean, that. I don't light it up every day. I think it's really funny. It's really funny. But, um, you know, I mean, I think for me, like that whole experience really triggered so much for me in terms of why I currently live out west, you know, and um, why I care about the environment and, you know, and environmental issues, sustainability. You know, I think taking me out of Queens at such an early age and putting me in a setting where we were like on this beautiful idyllic campus with like a pond and you know great blue herons are flying around and we're like taking wildlife biology art class so like all of that just kind of inspired me to to move out west and you know because for me like the outdoors is a huge part of my identity um whereas you know like all my best friends from the city have never left the city (laughs) you know you know right right (laughs) yeah Yeah. no i mean it makes total sense and by the way not to um not to generalize from the story you told but i did assume probably the boarding school thing like i did assume that probably the fact of your parents being immigrants. Mm-hmm. You're the first member of your family born here in the U.S. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I, I figured that had probably factored into it. That's yeah, such a, yeah. That is such a normal thing um, that it makes total sense. I mean, yeah. it makes total sense. Um, I know you didn't get around to food until later. Mm-hmm. You, you were you were pre-med. I was pre-med. And, and then you were... At NYU. Went, I came yeah. home, 
did pre-med at NYU because I was also supposed to be a doctor. My parents, both my parents worked in the medical field for, for many, many years. Um, my mom was a microbiology um, lab supervisor. She also taught microbiology at City College. My dad was a chemistry lab supervisor and ended up managing a lot of labs and hospitals in Brooklyn and the Bronx. Um, but after, you know, one year back in the city, commuting two hours on the E-train to get home, um, I was living with my parents again after, like, being gone for four years, living in the city, um, really not doing great in chemistry and bio and, like, you know, calculus. And um, I just thought I wanted to do something else. Mm -hmm. And I decided it was going to be wildlife biology. Mm -hmm. And uh, I made a move out west. Yeah. Before, um, before we get into all that, yeah, though, yeah, yeah. take me back to your childhood. Sure. Food. Yes. Okay. Big part. Where it was a big part. Yes. Okay. Where did it? How did it figure in? And what was your own personal relationship to it? The funniest story I have is that, as an Haitian household, Haitian communities like all these big celebrations. Of course, you know, like immigrant families, they they stick together. There's big celebrations, communions, celebrations, weddings, and I always used to get show with my mom because I'd be the first person online to eat. <laughs> So she was like a little embarrassed because I'd always be first online to eat. But the thing is, honestly, like I never really cooked, you know, um, I have a couple of memories of like baking with my sister and like having these awful experiments gone wrong. But it really, truly was because my mom just always cooked. And uh, the other maternal figures, like the aunts and the grandmothers, they would come and stay with us or we'd visit them and they would cook. Um, our aunt lived downstairs and she would oftentimes cook for us while well, because my parents worked multiple jobs. So we always had food on the table and it was always like signature traditional Haitian classic cuisine. So for all of my upbringing, you know, we really only ate traditional Haitian food because that's what my mom cooked, you know, outside of like, you know, hamburger helper and like Chinese takeout, you know, like, of course, um, but it was, Convenient stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it was always very specific Haitian cuisine. So like I have tons of memories of, I lived in Haiti when I was younger for a year. Um, you know, we would go on vacation as a family to Haiti. So, like, I have a lot of amazing memories surrounding Haitian cuisine and Haitian food. You know, our aunts and uncles and relatives would come and they'd bring spices and, and scotch bonnet chilies, uh, vanilla extract, and, you know, like candies from Haiti. Um, and those were always like a big part of celebratory events in our household. So, that really was it, you know, and I really didn't even think about becoming a chef or cooking until much later in life. And it was, yeah. I was feeding myself in college and that's when it all began. Yeah. So in terms of the food you grew up on, like when you just rattled off some of these things, you mm -hmm. mentioned some specific spices and mm -hmm. chilies and things. What about dishes? What, what, like what, what, what's the thing that like, if you walked in a, a home right now and smelled it or, you know, saw it on the, on the stove that would just like make you overjoyed? Yeah. What's I mean, the, what's, yeah. what's the one or two things? There's a lot, like, you know, I mean, buttons? there's there's chicken and Creole sauce, which I have a version in my cookbook, but like, that's like a very, very everyday chicken dish. It's just chicken. I mean, there's different ways to prepare it, but you basically, you you marinate with like a little lime juice, some ippies, which is like Haitian green seasoning, mm -hmm. um, sear it and then brown it with a little tomato paste, cook it with onions and peppers. There's It's a very saucy dish. Uh, you serve it with white rice, maybe rice cooked with beans, which is called douillac pois collet um, or douillac sauce which is rice with bean sauce. And for me, like, that would be my last meal on earth. It's the dish that I ask my mom to prepare anytime I see her. Mm -hmm. And it's really one of those dishes that you can walk into most Haitian households throughout the diaspora, and that meal will be on the stove. 
Great. Thank you. <laughs> so you, you start down the pre-med path in New York. You give, you stop that. Then you go to Montana. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what is it called? Agriculture? Not agriculture. Uh, wildlife biology. Wildlife biology. Yes, what yes, yes. <laughs> I, I could have Googled it, but yeah. I saw it in all the bio, every yeah, yeah, bio yeah, review it yeah. turns up. Um, but I don't know what I've never heard that term. Sure, what I is mean, it? I mean, it's basically like looking into the conservation of, of and preservation of wildlife, got it, in, okay. in their natural resources and like in parks and recreational areas, got it. So, I mean, personally, I think looking back, those are still things that I'm quite passionate about, um, and I could probably do it. You know, um, but, you know, I was starting like barbed wire fencing, you know, and like I was in class with a bunch of cowboys. And um, how was that? I mean, it was interesting. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't love he doesn't love a cowboy. But uh, <laughs> but, no, um, but I'm serious. Was that no. an accepting environment? Uh, yeah. I mean, the thing about Montana, it's a, I love the state. You know, Missoula, Montana, it's a it's a liberal college town, you know, even though Montana's a very, you know, divided state, mm-hmm. if very red leaning divided state, mm-hmm. you know, it has its pockets for sure. Um, but I it I had such a fantastic time. I, was, I lived there for four years. It was like definitely a, a, very much a coming of age time for me, even though I was like a little bit older. But I'll, just so much happened throughout those times. And on um, an animal level, it sounds like you are very happy in that kind of a setting. Like in terms of outside of a place like New York, like, yes, one hundred percent. Like just on a, on a yeah. like on an instinctual, yeah. Your being, yeah, belongs more yeah. in a, uh, more of a natural place like that than in yeah. a concrete place like we're sitting today. No, I, I I think so. I think yeah. so. I mean, I love city life. Like I can I can do it. I can stay up all night. Like I did that for many 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 years. But mm-hmm. you know, these days I, I wake up and I go hiking and running like all the time. Mm-hmm. Drive to the coast and chill out all yeah. the time. Yeah. So when does the notion of starting to possibly cook, sure. right? Because I can't imagine you yeah. have the vision so, for what you're doing right now you know, exactly. You know, my whole life, mom's cooked, grandma's cooked. I've lived at home. I go to boarding school. We get fed. I move back first in your college and live back at home again. Mom cooks. So here I am. I'm, all right, mom and dad, I'm moving to Montana. I've gotten into, into this program. Um, I'm renting my own house for the first time, feeding myself for the first time. And that's really where it began. Um, it began with being really, really poor, like, you know, my first year there and just living off like carbs and pasta and potatoes and just trying to, you know, just feed myself as much as possible. And then as I got my footing, you know, I just started reading cookbooks. I was also a vegetarian at the time, um, which has also led to kind of like why I have like specific diet distinctions now. Um, but I was vegetarian for the whole four years and I would read books like the Moosewood Cookbook and, um, you know, I would just start making things and and uh, my friends were like, hey, you're really good at this cooking stuff. We'd have potlucks and we have, you know, just little dinner parties. And I was always super excited to, to make stuff. And my friend was like, you should go work at a restaurant. And I just went to one of the best restaurants in town, which is like this little cafe. And, uh, and I just, the only job they have was the dishwasher. And I started washing dishes, and that was my first job in a restaurant. Um, at the same time, my roommate, she was working at this bookstore in Delhi, and um, I started working there as well. And the first things I ever cooked were, were just sandwiches and pasta salad, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and this lovely woman named Celeste, who was like a, a very much a deadhead, um, 
she just taught me how to make like really great pasta salads and make sure there was enough olive oil so they were glossy and you know I would nerd out over the sandwiches and make sure you know the sun-dried tomato mayo reached the edges of the bread and you know the sauerkraut on Reuben was perfectly stacked um, so you get consistency in every bite so from a very, very early start, you know, I just geeked out on like the precision of it all. Um, and it was really, really cool. I love when this happens. Yeah. You started talking about even this very basic job. Yeah. I mean, that, look at you, you're laughing now, but That's you, were, true, you were grinning ear to ear. Yeah. All of a, it's not like you've looked unhappy the rest no, of the yeah. time. But you, something it's funny because like when you, you, when you think about, about those things and those are formative life experiences, like my first job in a kitchen and like, you know, like think about like the, this past year that I've had and like I can, I can think back, I can see clearly, I can clearly see myself like back in that kitchen, like washing dishes and like mm-hmm. back in that kitchen, like making sandwiches, yeah. you know, but this, this clearly yeah. uh, woke up something in you, right? Something For that sure. was dormant in you yeah. that, that this activated. Yeah. Right. And like my sister, she, she has a much better memory than, than I do. <laughs> um, uh, but she has more memories of me cooking with my mother than I do. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I hightailed it out of there. You know, I was like, mom, dad, I want to go to culinary school. And they're like, no, 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 no. Like, like, you've traveled, like you keep jumping around, like you need to get a degree in something and then we can talk about culinary school. So I had a bunch of French credits. Um, I switched my major real quick. Graduated in a couple of years and hightailed it to CIA. Got it. Yeah. So you went and got yourself a French degree? I did. Okay. I did. Five years I, of college. I, I, I chalked it up to the Haitian background, but when you put yeah. out some of those dishes yeah. a minute ago, I was like, well, whoa. Well, that's in Creole, but yeah. 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 That, yeah. I mean, was, yeah. I, I was taking French just because obviously I'm Haitian, so right. I, sh- I should take French. Right. And um, it was like looking around, I was like, how do I get out of here as right, quickly right, as possible? Right. And it's right. like, all right, rack up the French credits. Wow. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, when you start that job you told me about and you start making pasta salads and mm-hmm. sandwiches and all that, um, you know, uh, I'm just curious. Well, actually, even before that, when you're cooking at home, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I'm wondering what you feel like your natural aptitude was, right? Because I feel like... To really oversimplify, there's a couple, there's several components, right, to a cook, right? There's, or a chef eventually, there's the technical, Mm. right? Do you have good hands? Do you pick up knife skills quickly? There's palate, Mm -hmm. you know, do you you season well? Do you have a good, you know, sense of all that? And then there's the creative piece, right? Mm -hmm. Which I guess is more optional, certainly when you're younger, right? Mm -hmm. But of those three things, did you feel like, did you improvise? Yeah. Did you have an ability from having eaten such good food growing up to, to, to you know, season really well? And then technically, did you pick things up easily? Yeah. I mean, I think sometimes you're just born with, like, the skill you're supposed to have. And, like, I know my mom's an amazing cook, you know, um... She has a, a somewhat of a smaller repertoire, but the dishes that she makes are always amazing. Um, you know, I think for me, even like before I started working and even before I went to culinary school, like I have a specific memory of like this first Thanksgiving feast that I ever made. And like I already wanted to make like the mashed potatoes with, with purple potatoes, you know. So I think a wanting to make a lavish feast, you know, just out of cookbooks prior to like really working in a restaurant and like already wanting to go on, kind of go into like off the grid kind of creative territory um, was probably like an early sign of the things to come. Got it. So you yeah. went into it with a certain degree of confidence. 
I think I think I think it was excitement back then, mm-hmm. you know, because I mean, I really didn't know, and I I really wasn't trying to prove anything because. I was just cooking for my friends. It was just more like, this is like really exciting. This is really fun. Let's have this crazy lavish feast and let's not make it super traditional. Um, you know, and do, having all of that before going to school, because school is where you get the pressure. You get, oh, my knife cuts need to be a certain way or this is how it's done traditionally. Um, you get the knowledge. But prior to that, I think I was just cooking out of fun and excitement and joy. Yeah. And it's cool to you know, to think back and like, it's like that aha moment because like your whole life you're asked, what do you want to do when you grow up? Or like, who do you want to be? Or what's your passion? And for that to finally not, to, it came out, you know, it, it was never forced, you know, and it took like quite some traveling. It, it took a few states, it took a few years. Um, it took a lot of school to finally figure it out that what I wanted to do, I hadn't even gone to school for it yet, you know? Yeah. Um, and to have that clarity which set me off on this path that I've been on for the past 25 years. Yeah. So, I mean, that's one of the reasons like I truly love Montana and it's like a safe place for me because I discovered myself there. So you decided to go to the, the culinary, right? <laughs> you guys call it the yeah. culinary Institute of America. Um, what was that? What was that like for you? It was amazing. Yeah. Well, first of all, through it all, my, you know, my parents insisted I go to CIA. It was either like FCI. There's, there's a, there's like natural gourmet here, which was like a. I think it just closed. Yeah, so like you know, I was I was a vegetarian for that whole time. Oh yeah, that would have been right. Like Amanda um, Cohen from Dirt Candy went there. Yeah, okay, yeah. that's perfect. And I think Shinari yeah. Freeman went there. Okay, so yeah, so my parents just said I go to CIA because it's one of the best. Um, so again, endlessly supportive. But CIA was amazing. You know, I think a I had literally already had five years of college under my belt, um, so like I knew the game. You know. Um, and to like be entering another school, living in the dorms again, like a little bit older, it was it was just it was a lot of things were just like kind of falling into place. But really, for the first time, like I just I devoured my classes. I loved it. You know, I remember going into wine's class and just like really studying really hard, and just being so excited about everything. And um, from very early on, just like always wanting to be the teacher's pet, wanting to pay attention. Um, and even then, you know, I remember like one of my first practicals, you know, like we had to make a consomme and I remember going around and like finding extra meat, um, extra ground beef to double flavor my consomme. So it had double the amount of meat. Um, so it had double the flavor. Um, and that so, was just an instinct. For you. Yeah. 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 How'd that go over? It was great. They it was, was great. They were, your, your instructor was cool yeah. with that? Yeah. Um, his name is actually Francesco Tonelli and he's actually oh. a very famous photographer right now yeah um yeah funny story is like i included him in my book and i i just like wrote i reached out to him i was like chef like (laughs) i reached out to him to shoot my book like way back in the day and he just like didn't remember who i was which is like really funny he's like oh i had so many students i'm like it's okay (laughs) but like you left an indelible impression on me i just want you to know oh yeah that was nice yeah yeah but yeah um but yeah you know (laughs) Um, I put extra saffron in my, you know, risotto milanese, you know, like I was just, I was just, even back then I was just, flavor was extremely, extremely important to me. Mm-hmm. And then this is around the time that the, that Jean-Georges von Richten comes into your life. So my mom's, one of my mom's best friends was Didier Verreau, who's the CDC oh, of sure. Jean-Georges, yeah. uh, his mother-in-law. So that was my in and I was the first intern uh, extern from Jean Georges. Um, I was the first extern from CIA to get into Jean Georges. I kind of started the externship program there. So 
that was a tremendous experience. Um, I would say this was like 1998. Um, so you just know, opened. JG had just been open a few years. Um, he was definitely there every day. And, you know, for an externship, you were given a lot of responsibility. You know, the, the system is way structured now. Um, I think you work like the news station, um, if I'm not, um, if I'm certain. Um, but back then, you were just literally thrown into the fire. Like you, you worked a station. Um, I remember specifically working Entremet, um, which is opposite the Saucier station. 100% responsibility for like all these ingredients. 100% responsibility for literally working, you know, at Jean Georges. And um, you know, it was a lot of pressure. And I remember specifically one day I started crying on the line. Um, JG was like, "What's up with this guy?" And he's just like, "I don't know." But uh, it was just from the pressure. Uh, yeah, just from the pressure. You know. But again, you know, like to have that opportunity, you know, like just a few months into culinary school to be working on the line of Jean Georges is a tremendous, tremendous opportunity. Um, and uh, I literally showed up there the day after graduation. One, one week after graduation, I showed up back at Jean Georges and asked for a job. Um, and they rehired me. Um, and uh, it was great. You know, I really felt I relearned so many things, like even things like cutting chives and how to mince a shallot properly. You know, I just graduated from CIA, but I really felt like I was retaught how to do these things um, on a different level at Jean-Georges. Um, and I began, you know, a, a, a controversial six and a half years um, because it was definitely the best years of my life in terms of like oh. my formative culinary years, but it was also exactly timestamped with like the beginning of my addiction. Yeah. So it was very complicated. I want to talk about all that in a second. Um, I'm curious to know, you know, John George at that, I mean, it's still great. Mm -hmm. He's an incredibly prolific restaurateur. Insane. Um, but um, when you go into that kitchen, mm -hmm. what kind of eater had you been prior to that beyond like your family experience? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's nothing like John George in Montana, right? No, not at all. But like in New York, had you, did you guys ever like go splurge on a, like an, like a, you know, three or four star New York Times dinner when oh, yeah. you were growing up. Did you, oh, had, um, were you familiar with that kind of a setting no. even as an eater or was this like I a mean, whole new world for you? It was new, but it was something that was, I was very eager to absorb, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, as a kid, you know, we always, we went to like, you know, nice Haitian restaurants for mm -hmm. celebratory events. Um, but like eating out in the city wasn't a huge part of what we did. Um, we just didn't really do it. Um, I mean, my parents are completely adventurous eaters now. They eat out everywhere with me. But, um, I mean, it really took, like, just absorbing culinary school. Like, I remember saving up to go to Aquavit, you know, um, way back in the day, you know. Is that the, still the Marcus era? Yeah, during okay. Marcus era, okay. you know. Um, you know, lobster with curry emulsion and, you know, chocolate beet cake, you yes. know. Um, going to Le Bernardin, you know, like way back in the day, you know, going to Danube, you know, way back in the day. Mm -hmm. um, so we would definitely go have these experiences as, you know, young line cooks. So uh, do you think, t I'm always interested, because you're, I guess you're a little bit, right, you're before the cusp, right? Mm -hmm. There's so many, I mean, you're one of them, right? There's so many restaurants now that are doing very personal food mm -hmm. that isn't in the old, you know, European slash French mold, mm -hmm. nor is it in like the quote unquote traditional 
new American mold. Mm-hmm. You know, my friend Joshua David Stein, who wrote the piece about you. I just, I just, package. I literally just rode the train with him to here. Oh, did you? Yeah, we totally bumped into each other in the city and like rode the train here together. Well, and we're all <laughs> going to be in the same place tonight. <laughs> no. uh, but um, uh, Joshua was one of my favorite people in the industry. Love Joshua. Um, and uh, uh, you know, he recently wrote a piece and he called he he, he coined or is trying to coin the term "new new American cook cuisine," <laughs> right? But what I'm getting at is, I feel like. There are so many people who are exploring their own personal heritage, mm-hmm. their family's culture. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a breadth of people doing this now across like f- a full spectrum of food. That was not the case mm-hmm. when you got out of cooking school. Mm-hmm. What I'm wondering is, do you feel like if there was someone who was doing something akin to what you do now at that time, do you think you would have gravitated more if you had had more options? Do you think you would have gravitated more toward that than sort of, I mean, because John George was basically like a European three-star Michelin, I mean, we didn't have the guide yet, right? Yeah, but I mean, do you, does that question make sense? Yeah, I mean, I think working at JG, uh, yes, definitely French technique and European you know, process, the whole, brigade system, the regalia of service, uh, the precision, you know, we debuted with three stars when Mission finally came to New York. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm grateful for the opportunity because it taught me two things. He did, JG did spend a lot of his early career in Asia. Yep. So, you know, introducing me to a lot of Asian ingredients um, in a professional kitchen setting was eye-opening because it just reinforce that you can have more ingredients at your fingertips. Um, you know, it was like fusion was like a huge thing back then. Um, it was a moment that's gone and passed, but it's like a dirty word. It's like, <laughs> it's like an insult. <laughs> um, but, um, but also seasonality, you know, and, and working at somewhere so luxe where, you know, asparagus with morels is on the menu for many, many months, you know, we had everything at our fingertips, but at the same time, every spring, summer, we'd get the van and just hit up Union Square Market and, you know, strawberries with the stems still on and purple scallions, like all these different vegetables and fruits that I'd never seen before. Mm-hmm. So those are the two things I thank JG for. Um, you know, I think I feel well-rounded because I've been able to, you know, learn French technique and be exposed to like global ingredients at an early stage in my career. Um, I've also worked in concept restaurants where I walk into something that is a concept and it's created um, and I have to kind of pull an inspiration from that. And, you know, that's now, you know, I think with this movement happening, it, for me, it, it's more of a story for me of this is my first restaurant and it has to be a very personal thing. And for me to do something so much later in life, um, I just felt like it truly had to be a story about um, me, my culture, everything that's influenced me throughout my career. Um, and the second piece of that is specifically being from, from Haiti and Haitian American, using my platform to shine a light on Haiti because I don't think that light shines bright enough. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that? I mean, so much of the narrative that yeah. comes out of Haiti is, is um, not good, you know, is no, negative. It's, 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 it's true, it's, you know. Um, um, and 
I think it's important, you know, part of the mission of Khan, the restaurant, is to share the story of Haiti and how strong Haiti has been as a country, you know, from, you know, the world's first free black republic to how Haiti inspired um, the end of slavery in other different countries around the world, um, how strong the Haitian presence and migration was from Haiti to the South, um, and how that you know helped found Creole of the South, um, and the importance of the Haitian diaspora throughout you know the world today. You know, and I think how we've helped so many different countries. How France abused us. How you know we have these amazing crops that have been um, overused. Um, but at the same time, I think the simplest story to tell is just how delicious Haitian food is. And if a lot of people, which I say most people, have not had Haitian food, unless you're living in a major city in America, um, that's really the easiest story to tell. Because Haitian food is absolutely some of the most delicious food in the world. And um, that's really at the core of Khan. And mm -hmm. it's like, hey, if you don't get anything else, like you're gonna leave this restaurant understanding like these are traditional Haitian dishes, these are traditional Haitian ingredients and flavors, um, and you're gonna know the story behind all of these ingredients. It's also, uh, to me, you and I were chatting before I started recording, right? Mm -hmm. Those two things are not mutually exclusive, right? Mm -hmm. Because the two, the two types of learning that you just described, because first of all, if you, if you track back through a lot of the ingredients and a lot of the techniques and what else, you will, you know, if you dig just a little bit below the surface, you will strike history, right? Indeed, indeed. And, and, um, and even if it's not so overt in the restaurant, I do think, you know, getting turned on to food like this does intrigue people. Mm. And people may go off and, and spend some time on Google, you know, and may do some reading. Um, um, you know, this is to me the fascinating thing about food is that it contains, like this is what you and I were chatting about before, basically yeah. everything. Everything. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's an incredible yeah. thing. Was that, well, okay, let me, let me save restaurants, uh, questions about Khan because you uh, alluded to um, your addiction. Mm -hmm. um, I, I know you've been very open in other yes. interviews talking about it. You've, you've proactively mentioned it a few times here. W at what age do you remember because look you, you were in New York City yeah. you're in the restaurant business yeah, yeah. Uh, especially at the time we're talking about I mean everything is around um, I mean God I don't I, I I know people who still do it and say don't mention it on your show but we still have shift drinks you know okay. stuff <laughs> Things like that. Yeah, yeah. I had people tell me, don't do that. You know, I, I brought up a bottle of something yeah. to a friends and family recently. And I said, I said, this is either for you or if you still do it in the kitchen, it's yeah. for your crew yeah. at the end of the night. And he goes, well, we still do it. We just don't. Instantly. <laughs> but back then, I yeah. mean, my God, I mean, yeah, cocaine I mean, was uh, yeah. we're getting toward the end of it being like, I mean, you know, it was, but the, it, it was the early aughts, you know, it was, yeah. I feel like it was like the last heyday of New York City, you know, um, I mean, for me, but uh, I, the, the, the thing I was wondering, you know, the way I, the reason I framed it the way I did was I, you were in a city and an industry mm -hmm. where it could take a while to even realize maybe that you you know, you had an, a problem or no, had more yeah. of a problem than other yeah. people. Yeah, I mean, I started- You couldn't manage it. No, for yeah. sure. And, and, you know, me and all my friends were in the same boat, you know? I mean, I started doing drugs when I went to boarding school, you know, because I grew up in a very, you know, chill, 
you know, immigrant Catholic school upbringing in Queens. Um, and then I went to boarding school with a bunch of, you know, kids from all around the city and the country. And, um, you know, I was doing drugs with, you know, the kids from the Puerto Rican kids from Bronx and from Co-op City. And, you know, like my white friends from the Upper East Side, it, it didn't matter. You know, like we were all just discovering ourselves and experimenting and, it was like fun and, you know, totally, you know, it was like totally fine, you know, and then college, you know, we came with like the rave days and the big club scene and um, the, of the late 90s uh, that brought in harder drugs. Um, by the time it was time to start working, you know, at Jean Georges, it was about the, the aughts and that whole drug scene had kind of died out and it just became drinking and cocaine for the most part um, and going to bars throughout the city and, you know, you work with like 20 people and we all know different people from all around the neighborhood and you know we're hanging out with like all the kids from all the, all the other restaurants in town and we're all meeting at bars downtown and the bars open till 4 a.m and then like and then 80 percent of the people go home and then you know the few of us are going to after hours and then you know like a few more people die off and then it's like me and like some sketchy person that i met at after hours going to after after hours you know um or waking up on a friend's couch you know like in a different borough that i don't live in you know so it it but at the same time like we're all in the same boat you know and like we're like oh you know i stayed out so late last night and but we're all kind of partying together and i mean i think for me it was really hard because I loved my mentors so much and I loved John George and my other mentor, Greg, so much. And I really stuck by them. It was a really difficult decision because they're like, you're clearly slipping, you're clearly messing up, like you clearly have a problem, but no one knows how to deal with it. You know, my parents don't know how, my family doesn't know how to deal with me because, you know, we've never had drug situations in our household. They've never really done drugs. They don't know how to handle me. My friends don't know how to handle me because we're all still partying. They just go to bed you know, like a few hours before I do and can go to work, whereas like I don't get up. So it was just, it was just really dark, it was really messy. Um, and it really took a friend being like, hey, you know, like, you know, I, I got fired from Jean-Georges, you know, I felt rightfully so after like being there for six and a half years and working at three restaurants and like I worked at a bunch of shitty places around the city. I finally worked with a friend again and he was like, listen, you can't work here until you go, unless you go to rehab. And that was like the final tr moment that was like, it was the moment where I decided that I had a moment where I could like stop and just like tell my parents I had a problem and check myself into rehab. Was this, is this the so-called moment of clarity? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. No. Was that a stupid question? No, no, but. It's just funny, like you would think it is, but okay. it's. I think it's very, very rare that people go to rehab and get sober on the first try. On the first attempt. You know, because literally the same people who are like, you need to go to rehab. I check myself into rehab. They're like, okay, great, you're in rehab. You can drink with us now. You know, you have it under control. You know, so it's just like understanding that process. Do you have a sense of what it was about your makeup mm -hmm. that made you susceptible to um, you know, this becoming a problem for you where, where friends of yours were maybe overindulging, but they could kind of keep it together mm -hmm. a little better. Like, do you think it's just as simple as it's the way you were wired? Like, this is just how you showed up on planet Earth when you were born? Um, I mean, I think so. It's like, it's hard to say because everything I work towards now and like my outlook on life now and everything I've been able to achieve in recovery 
is 100% based off like how shitty everything was prior to me being in recovery. You know, I work extra hard now because everything was so terrible before. You're your own you cautionary know? tale. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I mean, I think A, seeing my parents work two jobs their entire careers and like completely do everything for us. And I think that symbol of just like wanting something so much, you know, I think there's a lineage there, there's a correlation between like addictive behavior there, you know? Um, and I've called myself a workaholic at times. Um, you know, there's a lot of addiction is hereditary. There's no addiction in my family. Um, you know, addiction is a brain disease and I've, I gave myself the brain disease by repetitious use of drugs and alcohol. Um, so yeah, I mean, this is a question about like changing time and going back in time. You know, I don't think I could change anything because I've learned so much from that experience. I've learned so much from those years. And those years are really what motivate me to stay on the right track right now. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a term, and tell me if this is too personal and I'll, I'll disappear the question. Mm -hmm. You know, you mentioned getting fired from John George. Mm -hmm. You also have talked, I mean, I've seen multiple interviews where mm -hmm. you've talked about what an important relationship that was. Yeah. And, and you know, you, you, you rose to the level of CDC at some mm -hmm. of those places. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a term I think people are probably familiar with it about uh, of making amends. Yeah, this is like yeah. something that one does when they yeah. become sober. For and, sure. Yeah. And you know, and for those people who don't know, the, the if anyone out there, you know, this is basically where you go and you 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 apologize, you seek forgiveness. You may or may not get it, but it's an important step to mm -hmm. acknowledge how you wronged certain people. Yeah. Were you able to um, come to some kind of a peace after the fact oh, with, yeah. with him or with whoever else? Yeah, I mean, I got sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, and I worked the steps a couple times. So uh, that was a huge part of just the, the, you know, the fourth step, making amends. Um, it was extremely powerful. I would call people, I would email people, I would travel to go see people and make amends with them. And you don't necessarily apologize for what you did. You just kind of apologize for not being the best person you could be. And it's not about them accepting your amends. It's about just getting it off your chest and like letting them know that you are aware of what happened and you know you don't want to be that person anymore. Mm -hmm. So it was, I mean, getting responses back from all these people, like it brought me to my knees in tears. It was like a very, very powerful thing, like that whole few months that I was working on this. And you know, some people took it well. Um, you know, it did happen a few years. I'd been sober a few years. You know, the, the tricky part was, you know, I left New York as an addict in rehab and I got sober in Oregon not till two years later. Um, so it, it was quite a few years of trying to do work and overposting on Facebook because I wanted everyone to know that I was sober. I was I finally getting my life together. I was healthy. Um, so this when is a I, very common phenomenon. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So like when I came back to New York, you know, like I, I was so desperate to prove to everyone that I was like on the right track. And it was very awkward for many, many years. You know, I think it took about like, it was like year five. Um, and I remember, you know, being at the Spotted Pig of all places, cause we, we used to go there all the time. Um, and like, it was like the first night that my friends were drinking and I wasn't, and it wasn't awkward. It was like, it literally took five years before 
for that to happen. And like everything just felt normal. Um, it felt like the old days, except like I wasn't drinking. And you know, that guilt and shame that I felt just around them, it was gone for the first time. Mm-hmm. It's not easy around this industry. Yeah. I, yeah. I remember years ago, first of all, thank you for sharing all that stuff. Um, but I remember years ago, I had a mystery stomach ailment and I, I just couldn't, I could barely eat, but I definitely couldn't drink. And I was in the chef's kitchen, you know, I was working with them on a book and, and uh, you know, uh, the wine director came in with a bottle of champagne, you know, with like the, ta- the napkin around the neck and was like, going to pour you some champagne? I said, I can't drink right now. And like all the cooks looked at me and like the chef goes, why are you here? Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's better now, but it's tough. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we're going to the Esquire event tonight. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of... Yeah, yeah. Alcohol, like, all around, (laughs) you know, and you're one of the people of the hour, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, for me, yeah. Go ahead, sir. I mean, it was was so bad. You know, I feel very, very grateful that the desire to drink has been taken away from me um, because I know a lot of people who are 30 years in recovery, they still can't walk into a bar. And for me, getting sober was a way for me to keep doing things that I love. Um, and a lot of those things just happen to be around nightlife and restaurant culture and sometimes drugs and alcohol. And, you know, I'm still able to live my life throughout these moments, you yeah. know, and I'm, I feel very lucky, you know, and, and you know, in a, we say one day at a time, you know, I've, I've always had, you know, I'm just a planner. Um, you know, I, I, I don't want to, I need to think past one day at a time, you know, like I'm, I want to life this thing, but at the same time, I know that. There are plenty of people who relapse after like 14 years, 15 years, 30 years, people relapse. Um, and I don't want that to be part of my story. Yeah. So every day I just work hard to remind myself of what I have now because I am sober. Yeah. Um, the other thing about what you just said that really strikes me, when you said, you know, brought you to your knees in tears, the way people responded, that may not be the, the main goal or even a specific goal of making amends, right? But it just, you know, reminds me for the millionth time, you know, we all, it, it, it can be very hard to, to, to be, um, to open up about this kind of thing or any kind of vulnerability or however you look at it, a failing mm-hmm. or a, um, uh, a defect, whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. The capacity of, for most people, and this is my experience, to forgive, to understand, uh, to show compassion, if you're just level with them, mm-hmm. is I think greater than a lot of people realize. And I also believe this is kind of something about your industry. You know, it is, again, it's changing in the last several years, but I don't think it's the easiest environment in which to acknowledge something like this, you know, because you do kind of make yourself conspicuous in yeah. a lot of settings. I mean, I think the there's that's really great because it just leads into this thinking. Um, you know, we have to destigmatize addiction and we have to get past the shame of it all. And for me, I felt like when I was making amends, it was this layer of shame that was really coming off my shoulders um, and letting me like feel free, you know, like the years of lying to people and, and you know, every excuse in the book about why I'm late or missing, um, you know. Um, you unburdened yourself. Yeah, yeah, you know, and it's like, that layer, that that burden of shame, you know, lifts. And it, it takes forever. You know, it really takes forever. Um, you know, I've been in the public eye for quite some time. I've, you know, I've 
done Top Chef multiple times. I've talked about my addiction and recovery. I did a TED Talk, you know, on it, and I felt like I needed to peel another layer. Um, and every time I talk about it, it's very empowering because it, ta- it does destigmatize. It does take away the shame. And I feel like I'm able to just be myself. And we can talk about these things. And I also feel like being super vocal about it not only helps me feel better about my past, but it also inspires others. You know, it shows that we can't get sober. You know, I think one of the most powerful things that I've ever experienced is, you know, chefs from across the country. Hey, I just got my fourth DUI. What do I? What should I do? You know, getting a, like a call like completely out of the blue like that from like, people you don't know. People I know, but okay. like maybe we hadn't met yet. Um, but like things like that happen like all the time, and it's like I'm like, hey man, we have AA. There's Ben's Friends, which mm-hmm. is like a group for just folks in the industry. Um, what do you need? I have a bunch of phone numbers. Um, are you, you know, female? Um, would you like to speak to a woman? Would you like to speak to, you know, a certain gender? Um, will that be easier for you? Um, we, like, I lay it up, you know, and, and if you don't want to talk to me, you can talk to someone else. And, like, who's in the city that this person can talk to? Um, you know, what meetings do we have um, that are available, you know? So there's a network now, um, and, you know, that's why being vocal is extremely important that I think. Yeah, and also to what you just said about unburdening yourself, right? Mm-hmm. It takes so much energy to keep a secret like that. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times you're not really keeping that secret. No, it's not Like, a it's obvious to yeah, people. It's, it's compl- you're, clearly you're, obvious. You're, keeping you know, this, you're diluting you, yourself. You smell like alcohol. Yeah, right. You're four hours late. <laughs> you're falling asleep. You're, you're, you're falling asleep. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. On a different note. Let's talk about Khan. Sure. So tell me, first of all, tell people what the name is. Khan means cane, as in sugar cane in Haitian Creole. Yeah. Um, so the story behind the name of the restaurant is uh, in Haiti, there are sugarcane vendors that come down the street and they have wheelbarrows um, full of um, freshly harvested cane. And the vendor just says, Khan Kale, Khan Kale. And that means like fresh cut sugar cane. And you go to the corner, um, the vendor will peel the, the bark off, and then you can chew on the, on the fresh snack. Um, and that's the inspiration behind the name. Got it. How long had the restaurant been gestating in your mind? Mm-hmm. Like, like, I don't, like I, when the name came along, not probably as important. Mm-hmm. But at what point did you kind of start to have, like, you know, a dotted outline in your head of, like, when the time comes, this is the place I want to open? So for me, because I have had so many influences in my life, I really thought I was going to open more of a global concept. And I was like, oh, you know, I've worked in Asian concepts for so long. Um, but like, I definitely want to honor my heritage with some Haitian dishes. And like, I'm also like a farm to table seasonal chef and I want that on the menu. Um, so like I, I did, I had like a draft menu, which had a lot of influences. I knew I wanted to do like wood fired. Um, honestly, it was going on Top Chef and doing the pitch, which was a challenge that we had to do to get to Restaurant Wars. Um, and I had to pitch a restaurant concept to Tan, Padma, Kevin Boehm, and um, Stephanie Izard. Okay. Um, so I really had to hone in on the concept because I can be like, oh, it's a global concept and like there's like all these issues. It just didn't make any sense when I like explained it to myself. Um, and I had a very concise period of time to explain it. So I was like, okay, let's do like a wood-fired Haitian concept because that's far more focused. And it was like a little trickier to do complete wood-fired on the show. Um, so I was like, all right, let's just do like a Haitian restaurant. 
And that, I mean, it just felt so free to be in that space, you know? Um, prior to that, I had done multiple Haitian pop-ups. Mm-hmm. I think my first, like, Haiti Haitian pop-up was maybe like seven years ago, and I felt like it did not go well at all. I didn't source things properly. I kind of used the ingredients that I had on hand. Um, I didn't rely on my mom enough. Um, and ever since that moment, I knew, like, it just felt like something was missing. Um, I also felt that I was spending all this time, like, traveling to Asia and, and Europe and, like, studying all these different cultures um, on all these trips I was taking, um, but not spending enough time on my own culture. So that, like, I, I, dissolved, I developed some yearning, you know, for, like, Haitian culture. Um, so um, the big push was we were preparing for a Haitian dinner at the Beard House, and for, like, a year I just cooked with my mom. And I was like, Mom, all right, this is what we're going to do. I need you to teach me how to make everything. And it was, it was extremely specific. And, you know, I would visit them in Florida and we'd spend the whole time cooking together and I would take notes and um, any opportunity we had to be together, I would be like, mom, just show me how to do it. Um, and of course, I've been cooking for quite some time at this point. Um, so it was like very easy for me to absorb. Um, it was easy for me, to, for me to pick up. It was easy for me to like kind of see where I would like put my kind of personality into some of these dishes, um, maybe add a little bit more technique for better textures. Um, but yeah, it was like a really cool time. Um, I was able to take my mother on the road with me and she cooked with me at the Beard House. Oh, um, great. It was really amazing, yeah. We did was a that pop- amazing for it her? It was amazing. You yeah. know, we did a test run um, at the old restaurant I worked at in Portland, um, and then we did a dinner at the Beard House together a few months later. So I had, I had the exact Haitian meal, you know, like done a couple times. So when it was time to do it on Top Chef, like I had it down. I was like, I know I can make all of this food by myself mm-hmm. um, if I have to. Um, and I know exactly what I want to make. And it was seeing the reaction of the Haitian diaspora to that show that really galvanized me knowing that it needed to be specifically a Haitian restaurant. Because the people were, it, people were it, it seeing something they had not it, seen it was, in that kind it, of a... It, insane. You know, but that's what it was. The, yeah, yeah. For they, them just, they were, yeah, they were getting a kind of recognition um, and validation that they had not experienced yeah. in that kind of a public way. To see the foods that we eat every single day, right. you know, from celebrated, celebrated in and the like, mainstream, exactly. Yeah. And I think a lot of what is cool about Haitian cuisine is like even no matter what socioeconomical level you fall into in Haiti, we all eat a lot of the same foods. Um, so to see like doogie and sauspa, rice and beans, and like pate, which is like the patty that Stephanie helped us make on the show, um, which is like a salt cod patty and dough, um, whole fish, um, to see all these things, um, fried plantains um, on national TV for the first time um, was amazing. And like just to see the reaction on Haitian Twitter, it was it was it was it was so powerful. And it was like the first time I felt that, and I just knew that. I had to use my platform to to tell the story of Haiti. Do you? I mean, it's it's. I, this is kind of a corny question, but like, I look at your life. I look at like you know how many paths you started before you started in the kitchen. I look at the fact that you you know went to a place like the Culinary Institute and then worked at like you know even though yes with the Asian influence and mm-hmm. all that, but a place like Jean Georges. Mm-hmm. The fact that you found your way to what you're doing, um, you know, at a at a, at a this is not a derogatory comment, but no. a relatively, you know, these days, late age, yeah, open or first for sure, restaurant, for right? For sure. You know, your personal struggles that you've gotten through. Do you feel a sense of, like, do you feel a sense of 
purpose? Do you, do you almost feel like a sense of destiny about where you've ended up? Or is that just a ridiculously corny notion? No, I mean, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I woke up and like went to my job every day for like eight and a half years. And for eight and a half years, every single day, I like jumped out of bed and I was super excited to go to work. And then one day at eight and a half years, I didn't want to go to work. And like, I just knew it was time for change. And that's what triggered me working on my concept and working my way out of there. You know, and it took a year and a half and I gave my notice and, um, and slowly started working on con. Um, but that's, you know, I don't know. I mean, I've, you know, outside of like my stints with addiction and jumping around a little bit, you know, I mean, I was at John George for six and a half years. Mm-hmm. I was at this last post I was at for 10 years. So like, I really haven't worked that many places and I'm that person that stays, you know, until it's time to go. Yes. You know, so I feel like that's also why con is so important to me because I do feel like I've had so many life experiences that have helped me to get to this point. And even though I'm doing this for the first time on my own at a little bit later in my career, um, I feel like everything up to today, you know, is, is informing like how we run the restaurant, you mm-hmm. know? And it's been good, you know, like, I mean, I didn't even find the space that we're in now until like April of last year. So it really took this much time for everything to fall into place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, last question. I, I, I'm talking to you with the disadvantage of not being to the restaurant mm-hmm. yet. Yeah. Okay. Come um, visit us. I will. It wasn't, I haven't been to Portland since before the plague, okay. but next time I come, I, I will be there. Okay, please. Last time I was there was 2018. Okay. Um, but with, with the training you had, okay, and, and, and then doing Haitian food, mm-hmm. how um, I mean, I know it's live fire, so that mm-hmm. probably answers the question somewhat. But is do you try to keep things from getting a little too, what would be the word, fancy with the food? Yeah. I'll tell you where the question yeah. comes yeah. from. Yeah. I, so I grew up with, a, my stepmother was born in Cuba, mm-hmm. my late stepmother. Mm-hmm. And I grew up with more Cuban step relatives mm-hmm. than I did with Jewish American relatives. Mm-hmm. My, my father's family, my mother's family, pretty small. My stepmother's family was huge. They all were in Florida, Miami, where mm-hmm. I grew up. Mm-hmm. And I loved my stepmother's home cooking. I mean, I've written about it. Um, uh, once in a while, I'll see somebody taking the, you know, a, a fine dining training and applying it to Cuban food and I'm like, you've gone too far. Mm-hmm. You know, you've mm-hmm. taken the soul out yeah. of it. Yeah. This is not inherently food that's meant to be show-offy. This is, you know, like it needs, you, 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 you lose something if you start to get a little too cute with it. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, 100%. Is this something you're mindful of in yeah. what you do? Because I mean, it feels like there's a well, kind yeah. of a culinary kinship there. For me, you know, because, again, so many, so few people have had Haitian food, you know, I really want people... I really want people to come to the restaurant and leave understanding what Haitian food is. And I would be doing them, we would be doing them a disservice if we tried to modernize, update, quote unquote, elevate all these dishes. Um, That's really not my style. Um, You know, I love hearty, soulful, you know, stews, saucy, um, you know, and a lot of Haitian food is already like that. So, you know, there's definitely, you know, 
the butterfish dish, which is, you know, like kind of, it, it, it is tataki with a shave ice that's inspired by um, like Caribbean shave ice with like mint and lemongrass, which are herbs that we use in tea in Haiti. But that's, you know, it's got flowers on it. It's, it's a signature dish. Um, you could find that dish in any type of modern, you know, setting. Um, but at the other end of the spectrum, we have dishes like legume, which is like a, just like a soulful mess of like eggplant and carrots with like a piece, which is Haitian green seasoning and Creole sauce. It's spicy. Um, it's just everything cooked in one pot. And you do that uh, one pretty much straight up. Yeah. Yeah. Traditional. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we garnish it with, you know, some, some herbs and flowers, you know, but, but, that's uh, but a, beneath the layer of that is like just a very traditional version of, um, what legume is, right. um, or at least what my mom's version was. So that's um, the, this yeah. is the point I yeah. was making. And also, okay. I mean, the griot, which is like another signature dish, is the national dish of Haiti. It's twice cooked pork. And, uh, you know, I've, I've, we have literally worked on this for five years, and I've done many iterations of it. And I was like, how do I elevate it? You know, and then I like, how about I keep the integrity of the dish? Um, and we finally landed on the, dish, the version that we have now. And, um, you know, it's like one of those things where I feel like sometimes young well, I, I, would, I would say sometimes you have the traditional version that your family makes, and then you learn how to cook, and you, you think about texture, and you think about mouthfeel, and uh, you know I want the glio to be super tender on the inside, and just like a little bit crispy on the outside. Um, and I want the fried plantains to be just a little thinner, um, so they're just like a little crispier, not as dense in the middle. So those are like the liberties that we've taken with that dish. Right. Um, but at the, at the core, yeah. the dish, looks and eats as it traditionally should. Yeah, so, I think so. So you're taking these, yeah. these um, powers you've developed in, in the places that you've worked mm -hmm. and you're using them to emphasize, highlight, um, maybe bring a little more nuance or, or to, you know, it's like, a, it's like when you get a, a digitally remastered yeah. uh, old right, recording, exactly. right? Exactly. You're, you're, exactly. you're doing a new mix but the but the song is essentially the same. Yeah, yeah. Is that act? Is that no? A it's very true. Way to put it? Yeah, very true. You know, and I've gotten a little feedback. I mean, someone said the plantains are cut too thin, and you know, I disagree. You're <laughs> you never going to please everybody. Yeah. No, but at the good. same but time, you know who you are with this yeah. stuff. Um, so yeah. So you know, you know, I feel there's a lexicon of Haitian cuisine, and there's very specific ways to do things. But I think. The Haitian diaspora is broad, and as we've moved into other countries and other cities, like we've incorporated different cooking methods, and you know there is some flexibility in Haitian cuisine. Um, and I would say that 99% of the Haitians that and Haitian Americans that come through are very very happy with the food icon. Great. Some are very 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 critical. You know, we have a lot of folks that come from Florida. They come visit. You know, I think, you know, the restaurant is also me. You know, and so like it's like a big room. There's gold accents. It's not your traditional mom and pop style Haitian restaurant, which is a little bit more common. So, I think just seeing Haitian food served in that type of setting um, somewhat throws some people off who haven't experienced Haitian food in the type of setting. Um, but again, for me, it was all about creating the best platform that we could for the cuisine. I'm gonna leave it there. This was great. Thank you yeah. for doing oh this. Oh my god! Thank Thanks for having me. Thanks for yeah. Going out of your yeah. way to come here <laughs> and like on your celebratory yeah. visit to New York. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, after briefly shaking hands several yeah. months ago, it's yeah. great to yeah. get to know you a little yeah. bit. Thanks for walking me into your home, yeah. Andrew. You.
And that's our show for today. Thanks again to Gregory Gorday for joining us and for trekking out to Brooklyn to do it. Thank you, as always, to Sam Pellegrino for their support of the show. Andrew Talks to Chefs is produced by Table 12 Productions. The show is written, booked, edited, mixed, and hosted by me, Andrew Friedman. If you would like to support us, we ask you do that by telling a friend, posting about the show on social media, or rating or reviewing us at Apple Podcasts, which does help new listeners find the pod. Our thanks to After School Special for our music. Please check out their album, Double Barrel, single entendre on itunes please do follow us on instagram again the handle there is at chef podcast and thank you very much for listening we will see you back soon with another episode of andrew talks to chefs <laughs>